Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. And we're going to begin this morning in verse 15 with the seventh trumpet. We finally come to the end of the the blowing of the seven trumpets. This was introduced to us in chapter 8, but there is much for us to learn here at the end of this vision. So if you would just join me in Revelation chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 16 tells us, And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we study it any further? Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that you have given to us, that you have revealed to your servants, and that you have preserved for us today. We thank you that we can know what you have shown to us and that there is a purpose in it. And that purpose is for us to know our God and to respond in a way that is faithful. So I pray this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds and that you would motivate our lives by your word, that you would accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, whether that be to comfort us or to afflict us or to convince us. I pray that you would have your way with us and that you would use me in the dissemination of your truth. So, Father, accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It was first performed on stage in Dublin in April 13th, 1742. The record-breaking audience of 700 people was only possible because the ladies in the crowd had heeded the request of management to wear dresses without hoops to make room for all of the the people who were coming. Originally, it was an Easter offering, but we have come to know George Friedrich Handel's Messiah as a fixture of the Christmas season. How many of you are familiar with Handel's Messiah? Few of you are. The piece starts out on a fairly somber note as it's sung, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord. 
And then the soloists get involved and there is just wave upon wave of chorus until the midway point where we hear from Jesus or about Jesus that he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. For the last 250 years, Handel's Messiah has been one of the most frequently performed choral pieces in Western music. And the best-known piece in the entire oratorio is, without doubt, the Hallelujah Chorus. Right, Mark? The Hallelujah Chorus. How many of you are familiar with that piece? The chorus is one of the most famous pieces of Baroque choral music, and to hear it performed in a live setting is breathtaking. And one of the piercing and powerful phrases from the Hallelujah Chorus is taken right out of our passage this morning. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And of His Christ. Hallelujah. These lines declare the absolute rule of the Father and the Son over everything. These lines declare that the kingdom of this world has fallen and the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ has come in its fullness and glory. And the Lord and His Christ shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You know how it goes. Well, as we come to the end of this third vision in the Revelation, we see that the culmination of all that has been building, the the promises that God has made are being fulfilled, the full consummation of the kingdom of God has come, and we are seeing that as a projection of what the end will be. That's where we've come in Revelation chapter 11. And you might be asking, well, why are there more chapters? Well, we'll get to that in the end. But we finally come to the end of this vision, to the end of the church age. That's what all of these visions are telling us about and and revealing to us. The age of the church, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We finally reached that point in this vision. Last week, we saw the church resurrected. We saw the judgment of God begin to fall on the unbelieving world in the form of an earthquake. And this week, the scene shifts from what's taking place on earth to back to heaven. Notice that in the text. We're now looking back into heaven, and we're seeing the response of heaven to what God has done on earth. We're told that the kingdom of this world has fallen and that the Lord has begun to reign. And we have already seen this before. At the end of chapter 7, as chapter 8 begins... We, we see the same pattern. So we've already seen it in part. We're seeing it again. And oh, by the way, we're going to see it yet again down the road. But we've, once again, we've reached the climax of the church age. Christ has returned and God's final kingdom has been fully established. And John reveals that to us in three particular steps here in the text. The first is that he shows us and tells us that the work of God is completed And then he tells us that the worship of God has commenced. And then finally, he tells us that the temple of God is open. So those are the three things we're going to look at as we see this text. But I wanted you to have a context for where we're going. But let's look back at verse 15 and and let's try to understand that the work of God has been completed. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. 
And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now finally, the seventh trumpet has been blown. And, and, and we have to kind of remember where we've been because there was a break after certain trumpets. There was a, we, we, we saw this series of woes come in and we had entire chapters that were devoted to those woes and how they were going to unfold. Because as the, the visions of the revelation continue, each one reveals a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more about all of the things that are going to happen during the church age. And that's why there's more visions to come because God is not through revealing what is going to happen during the time of the church and what is going to happen near the end. But finally, we've come to the end of this when the seventh trumpet has been blown and we know from this language that the end of the world has come in this vision. The vision that began in chapter 8 You can go back and look at that if you want. The first couple of verses in chapter 8, that's where the vision began. And we were introduced to the seven angels, and they were all given seven trumpets, and they began to blow those things. Well, now the final seventh trumpet has been blown. The consummation of the kingdom is there. And once again, maybe you didn't notice it. Maybe you didn't recognize it as you read this. But once again, John, the revelator, he's reaching back into Old Testament history, and he's bringing a story from Israel's past into the present, and he's using it to symbolize symbolically help us understand what it's going to be like when the kingdom of this world falls. How many of y'all remember the story of Jericho? Joshua chapter 6. Do you remember what God told his people to do around Jericho? The, the, the strangest, the, the most odd military campaign that you could possibly imagine. God puts trumpets in the hands of the priests and then he causes all of the people, all of the, the military aged men to walk around the city for an entire week, for seven days. And each day they're to walk around the city silently and then when they finish that, they're to blow the trumpets, right? That's how that happens. Well, do you remember what happened on the seventh day? The text will remind you what happens on the seventh day. Joshua 6 says, And on that day, the day that they marched around the city seven times, and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And you know the story. They blew the trumpets, and the city fell. When the children of Israel blew the trumpets outside the walls of Jericho on the seventh day, the city came crashing down. And and all throughout the week, each time they circled the city and they blew the trumpets, the trumpets were a warning to the people in the city of Jericho that the judgment of God was coming. And you may remember that I told you at the beginning of the seven trumpets in Revelation that the trumpets were warning that the judgment of God is coming. It's the same story. Just John takes that story and he pulls it in to help us understand something of what's going to happen in the end. So as the seventh angel blows his trumpet and the kingdom of this world comes crashing down, we realize and recognize that these trumpets have served as a warning to the kingdom of this world. God's judgment was coming and with the final trumpet, that judgment has finally come. The end of the kingdom of this world has come. And the kingdom of our Lord has been fully established. That's the picture that we see here. Now, a kingdom, a kingdom implies three things. 
First, there must be a people. Second, there must be a place. And third, there must be a ruler. A kingdom implies those three things. You have to have a people to be ruled, a place where that rule is applied, and then a ruler who's going to exercise his particular rule. And in the case of the kingdom of this world, all the unbelievers who dwell on the earth serve as its people. The earth itself is the domain of the kingdom of this world, and the ruler, the ruler of this world is declared in Scripture over and over to be Satan himself. But the seventh trumpet announces that the kingdom of this world has been overtaken by the kingdom of God. In other words, a superior kingdom that has the Old Testament believers and New Testament believers as its citizens and the new heaven and the new earth as its domain also has our Lord and his Christ as its ruler. And this kingdom has come according to this vision. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In other words, one kingdom has overtaken the other. Now, you might still be hung up on the fact that that I said that the ruler of this world, the kingdom of this world, is Satan. Let me explain to you why I hold to that position. The kingdom of this world belonged to the usurper, the deceiver, the literal snake in the garden. In John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world that he had come to cast out. That's John 12, 31. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the apostle Paul is helping us understand our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And in the midst of him talking about our spiritual deadness, he refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. He goes by many names including Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub. He is the deceiver, the tempter, the adversary, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the slanderer, the father of lies, the ancient serpent. He is the devil. He is the enemy of God, and he is the enemy of God's people. And according to Scripture, he has been granted a certain level of authority over the kingdom of this world. And you might remember when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness that Satan actually offered this to Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, it says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And we know what Jesus says. Jesus says it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So this was not an empty offer. This was not an empty boast on Satan's part. In this temptation, he was still scheming to overthrow the kingdom of God, to overthrow the throne of God. If if Satan could forge an alliance with the Son of God, then he would have authority that went beyond what he had already been given by God himself. Perhaps he could make this happen. I mean, he tempted Adam with a piece of fruit. Surely he could tempt Jesus with the kingdom of this world. No, he failed. His authority was granted to him by the supreme authority in the universe, and God has always reigned, and the heart of our Lord has always been given to the purposes of his Father. And as the seventh trumpet is blown, we are told that the kingdom of this world has been overtaken, overthrown, and the king deposed. That's the picture we see here. 
And I want you to hear this language. We sung it a minute ago, and I'll come back to it later. Jesus rejected the crown that Satan offered him, and he chose instead a cross. And just like Cody mentioned to us as he was leading us in a time of confession and focus on the reading of Scripture, we too have that same pattern to follow. Cross first, the crown comes second. As we live in this world and our enemy is still active, we are warned and reminded that persecution will surely follow those who desire to live a a godly life in Christ. And we will lay down our lives for the sake of our king, for the sake of his kingdom, but there is a reward coming. Just like Jesus, the cross came first, but a greater and more glorious crown awaits. James even tells us that for those who are faithful until the end, we will receive the crown of life. We'll get to that. But make no mistake about where we are in this vision. This celebration tells us that the kingdom of God has already come. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Some of you were part of Mark Ritchie's Greek class recently, and you may know what I'm about to say. I don't typically talk about verb tenses and things like that because for most of us, we have no idea what that means. But in this particular case, I think it's important, and some of you might recognize it. This verb is in the aorist indicative tense, which signifies a completed action that has taken place in the past. So in this vision, it's as though it's taken place in the past. But it has implications for today. The seventh trumpet marks the end of all things. The full consummation of God's redemptive work. From John's perspective in this vision, Satan's sin and death have been overthrown. Christ is now the victor. He has established his reign and he shall reign forever and ever. There is no mistaking that this seventh trumpet is, is marking for us the very end of all things. Now, over the course of this vision, we have progressed from the time of Christ's first coming to now the time of Christ's return. We will see this again. We will come back through this whole season. And the reason, well, I don't know that I should say the reason. I think one of the reasons that Jesus shows us different visions of the same period of time is that he wants to sear into our hearts and minds what we should expect as we live in this world and what we should expect at the end of things. With each new vision, we see more than we did in the previous vision. The persecution of the church becomes more significant and the victory over the world becomes more significant until the final vision when Christ himself comes. And it's all talking about the same thing. It's just giving us different vantage points. But in that final vision, Jesus comes back on that great white war horse. You remember that? And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We don't see that in this vision. We don't get that kind of description in this vision, but we do know that this vision is pointing us to that particular season. And Jesus wants us to know that even though we don't know the day nor the hour of his return, when he comes, the end will come with him. Christ will return, he will rescue his people, he will judge the unbelieving world, and he will establish his kingdom, and heaven will invade earth as he comes to dwell with his people, and he shall reign forever and ever. This particular part of this vision is letting us know that the work of God is complete. And now that the work of God is complete, we're going to see in the next verse that the worship of God has 
commenced. Look at verse 16 with me. And the 24 elders, we haven't seen them in a while, but they're back. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Now, it's been a while since we've seen from these guys. It's been a while since we've talked about these guys. Um, I positioned them or taught early on as we first began to to hear their, their title and see them work, that these 24 elders are symbolic representatives of the whole assembly of God's people. They represent the 12 patriarchs and the old covenant saints, and they represent the 12 apostles and the new covenant saints, and they surround the throne. They have close proximity to God himself, and they, at this particular point, have begun to worship the Lord and his Christ. And notice what they say, as well as what they don't say, in verse 17. Look back at the text. They say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, surely you notice that something is missing from that hymn. The Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, it's missing that phrase that we've become accustomed to, and the one who is to come, right? Why is it missing from this phrase? Because in this vision, he has already come. They're not still anticipating his coming. His coming has occurred. So they don't need to talk about him as the one who is to come. He has already come and he has established his kingdom. The people of God have always looked forward to the coming of the Lord that was to happen. And the coming of the Lord was... It was the symbol that the end of all things had occurred. The end of time. And that's the point in the story where we find ourselves. His second coming has already occurred. That was what we referred to in the the weeks prior as we looked at the rest of chapter 11. The final judgment of God was not fully described, but it was introduced. If you were here last week, I mentioned that the earthquake that we see is a reference to the judgment of God falling But God's great power was unleashed and he has begun to reign. And the elders are addressing the fact that he has taken his great power. He has taken. Again, the verb tense is important. It describes a completed action that occurred in the past but has present and ongoing effects. In other words, this is not something that according to this vision will happen. It's something that according to this vision has already happened. Christ has seized power. And he has begun to exercise his authority. But how did that happen? How did God accomplish this? Well, the elders give us some clue. Look at verse 18 here. It says that the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers, of the earth. This seems quite clear, right? The nations raged. God poured out his wrath. He judged the dead. He rewarded his people. That's what we understand is going to be uh, happening at the end of time. And that's what he's referring to here. But this actual, the, the terminology here, the phraseology here, might make you remember a psalm. Because this language is taken straight out of Psalm 2. 
In Psalm 2, we read this. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs and he will speak to them in his wrath. John is drawing again on that language as these elders sing the praises of God and how he accomplished the consummation of his kingdom. Now think about this. How many kings and rulers have sought to challenge God? How many intellectuals and scholars have declared God dead or likened him to a myth equivalent to the flying spaghetti monster? Some of y'all know that reference. Prominent atheists today seem to be very certain of two things. God does not exist and they hate him which the laugh indicates that you see how inconsistent that is. But how does God feel about those who mock him? How does God feel about those who rage against him and plot in vain? Well, the text tells us he laughs. In other words, he's not concerned about their mocking. They don't change his plan in one bit. They're not even an annoyance to him. He laughs and then he speaks to them. And how does he speak to them? In his wrath, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. Now, this phrase confirms without doubt that this passage is describing the last judgment. From the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, the raising of unbelieving peoples to to face the judgment of God comes at the conclusion of history. This has been appointed, according to the writer of Hebrews, who tells us that it is appointed for man to die, and after death comes judgment. That's what we're seeing here. This is the description, and then we don't get the full unfolding of the books. That's going to come later, so we'll see more of what this looks like in the next vision, but that's what we're seeing here. God is judging the unbelieving dead as he raises them for that purpose, but also sandwiched in between the the judgment for the dead and the destroying of the destroyers, which is just, I think they're saying the same thing. But sandwiched in between those two statements of God's judgment, we we see that the faithful servants of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament, prophets and saints, small and great, they will receive reward. And that's talking about you and I. That's talking about all who put their hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what will that reward be? What reward has God promised to his people? Now, Jesus talks about the promise of reward that is to come, and that's going to serve as motivation for our faithfulness. The New Testament authors talk about that promise as well. They don't specify what it is. The closest thing we get to, to someone specifying the reward, I believe, is from James. I quoted it earlier. And James refers to, he, in verse 12 of chapter 1, James says, Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And this is clearly indicating that this this crown, this receiving of a reward, is to come at the end of all days, at the end of time, when God raises us to judge and to reward. And he calls it here a crown of life. 
Believers who remain faithful until the end, those who endure the tribulation thrown at us by the devil himself during the age of the church, will receive this crown of life. And what is the crown of life? Well, it's a crown of life. James is not talking about a physical crown that we're going to receive. The crown itself is a crown of life. It's eternal life that is our reward. That's what this is about. We get to live with God forever and ever. We get to live as his people under his rule in his domain forever and ever. That's the reward. The reward is to see Christ face to face and to know that we need not fear his wrath because he died to pay our ransom. Servants of God, prophets, saint, great, small, doesn't matter. Jesus wants us to stand our ground and hold firmly to the truth of the gospel. He wants us to endure the trials of this life for his sake, knowing that our debts have been paid and eternal life is our reward. And we didn't earn it. It was granted to us as a gift. So the work of God is complete. The worship of God has commenced. And let's look at the last verse here. Verse 19. And the temple of God is open. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now we've seen that phrase before. I don't know if if you guys are on board with me in that this is reciprocal. We're seeing the same visions. But when you begin to see the same things over and over and over again in the Revelation, you kind of have to ask yourself the question, why am I seeing the same things? We see that very same line, this idea of flashes and lightnings and rumblings of thunder and an earthquake. We see that same thing at the end of the last vision in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 5. You can mark that. You can go back and look at it. But what it's doing is it's showing us that there are symbols that we're going to see at the end of every vision. And that's supposed to stand out in our minds. Repetition is supposed to help us understand what's happening. So when the first vision of the church age came to a close, we see that same language. Now we're seeing the second vision of the church age come to a close and we see the same language. And guess what? We'll see it again. This last phrase, the lightning and the thunder and the earthquake and all this, it harkens back to a time when God came down from heaven and he rested upon a mountain. Do you remember that? When God came down, this was after the Exodus, or after he, he, he took his people out of Egypt. In the book of Exodus, we read about them coming to Mount Sinai, and they established themselves around the base of the mountain, and they were to consecrate themselves and prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord. And they weren't ready for what happened, because when he came down, they were so fearful that they begged Moses to ask God to stop speaking to them. Because all they saw was darkness and fire and lightning and the rumbling of thunder. This is a symbol of God's power. This is a symbol of God descending onto earth. And that's what this language is supposed to help us understand. These meteorological occurrences help us to have a sense of awe at the power of God. When we see him... We will not boast, we will not brag, we will not puff out our chests, we will not draw a 
attention to how pretty we are or how strong we are or how smart we are or how righteous we may think we are, when we come face to face with the revelation of God in this way, we will be absolutely humbled by His power and majesty. And yet, we will also be welcomed into His presence by His mercy. The juxtaposition of those things You should ponder that if you haven't. The reality that when when even the people of God in the Exodus saw him, they were so fearful of his presence. They were so internally aware of their own unworthiness, just as he descended from heaven, that they cried out and hid from him. And yet, Heaven is not this place that we as the believers should fear. It's a place where we are welcomed into. God has opened heaven for us. God has torn the veil in two for us. And the very Ark of the Covenant that no one but the high priest once a year had access to, now it is visibly seen for all of those who believe. John tells us that there's going to be an open house in heaven. When's the last time you went to an open house? Some of you don't know what an open house is because you never did open house at school. Your open house is school, right? Homeschooling, that's what you do. But there are open houses in other ways. Maybe you went to an open house to see a new house that was built in your neighborhood and you wanted to look at it. And, or maybe it was a work open house. You wanted to come in and meet new people and see what you were going to do. An open house is a chance for what has been hidden to be opened up and revealed. Right? We get to walk in. We get to see where we're going to sit. We get to see who we're going to work with and meet those people and, and get some idea of what we're going to be doing. And John tells us that at the end... It's going to be like open house. Everything that's been hidden from us, everything that we've longed to see, we're going to have access to. The veil is removed. God's temple is open. The place where God and man can dwell together is going to be open and accessible to all those who trust in Christ. And the ark of God will be there. Why is the ark of God there? You know what the ark of God stands for? The Ark of the Covenant as we know it, it had been hidden for a long time. It disappeared during the Babylonian captivity. But when the end comes, it will be on full display. The Ark and the mercy seat, the place where atonement was made. Every year, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and would pour out the blood of sacrifice onto the Ark, to the mercy seat. This was the place where our sins were atoned for. And it was symbolic of what Christ was going to accomplish for his people once and for all. The writer of Hebrews tells us all about that. And here at the end of all things, the ark is going to be open to us. We're going to have access to it. Not because sacrifices need to be made again and again, but as a reminder for the sacrifice of Christ. Even in heaven, the beauty of the gospel is going to be on full display as a constant reminder of God's saving love for his people. The only way we get in is by faith in what Christ has done. The gospel is the most amazing story. 
It is the best news in the world. It is the truth that God is holy and we are not. It is the announcement of his love sent to us in the person of his son who came to live an obedient life we can never hope to live and to die a sacrificial death that we deserve to die so that by faith in him we could be saved from his wrath and be granted eternal life as a gift. And we're, look, in heaven... It's not as though the gospel takes a back seat. It's front and center. And we're going to praise our Savior for it. The good news of Jesus Christ is such an amazing story that we will still be talking about it, celebrating it, and worshiping God for it throughout eternity. Okay. That's the end of this vision. As this vision comes to a close, you might begin to wonder... What more is there for us to see? What comes next? The next vision in chapter 12, and you can flip over in your Bible if you want, and you can see the heading there. The next vision in chapter 12, once again, it takes us back to the beginning of the church age. And it's pretty much on the nose, in case you're curious or you don't really think that's what's happening. We go back to the beginning to the first coming of Christ, chapter 11 ends with Christ's kingdom being established and the throne of heaven being opened, but chapter 12 begins with a baby being born. Just like Jesus came into the world, the mother and the baby are being hunted by the dragon. In other words, the church age has begun again. And God has a new vision for us to learn about. This passage, and that's just a teaser, We'll talk about that next week. We'll get into chapter 12 next week. I just want you to see the patterns. This passage and the entire vision are a gift from God to us. He wants us to know what to expect. He wants us to know what is coming. And he doesn't want us to lose hope when life gets hard. When temptation and persecution find us, we set our hope on the future grace of God. So I wrestled with how to end this sermon all week. And rather than give you the three points of application or four points of here's what we do now, I, there's a passage of scripture that I want to leave you with. And it's a passage that I think summarizes this message and this vision fairly well and gives us some instruction along the way. And it's from 1 Peter chapter 5. You can turn there if you want. It's in 1 Peter chapter 5 and it starts in verse 10. It's just verses 10 and 11. It's the very end of the book. And Peter has been describing the, church, the Christian life. He's, he's been giving instruction for us. He's been describing the gospel and its implications and its application to our life. But he comes to the end of his book and he says this as a comfort and an encouragement to the church. He says, after you have suffered a little while, after you have suffered a little while, indicating we should expect it. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's how Peter ends. I was talking to a sister just last week, and she, she said to me, she said, I'm so thankful for how you've been preaching through this book because even though I know there are difficult days ahead for us, the way that you have explained it and helped us to see it, I'm not afraid of those days. Yes, it's going to be hard, but what is to come is far more glorious than what is behind. 
And I think that Peter would have us believe and be comforted by the same thing. Peter's goal in this conclusion is assurance. The God who called us to his eternal glory will make sure that he brings us into eternal glory. And no amount of suffering or persecution that we face in this life can stop him from accomplishing that purpose. We may suffer for a little while. But the God of all grace who chose us before the world began. The God of all grace who caused us to be born again to a living hope. The God of all grace who who brought us from death to life who poured out his love through his son and then gave us eyes to see and hearts to believe, the God of all grace will accomplish his purpose. He will restore us and confirm us and strengthen and establish us. Sink your heart, sink the anchor of your heart into the promise of God's future grace. Remember the truth that what is behind us doesn't compare to the glory of what is before us. And understand that as we face suffering, if we face that suffering, that our God is stronger than our enemy. It it was Peter who told us that our enemy is like a fierce and roaring lion, but he also tells us in the same breath that our God is stronger. We face trials here, but glory awaits. Remember, cross first crown comes later. And we should have every confidence that at the end of the day, that at the end of all days, Satan will be overthrown. He's not in control. God is. Satan's dominion will be taken from him and Christ's dominion will be established over every kingdom. It may appear at times that our our enemy is winning, but don't forget that he's nothing more than a lion on a leash. Our God is in control. And he has dominion and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these visions that you have given to us. And I thank you that you have allowed us to study it and and hopefully prayerfully understand it more clearly. Not just so that we can be puffed up with knowledge because we do know that knowledge has that tendency to puff us up. We don't want to be arrogant with what we know. We want to be humbled by your truth. And so, Father, as we come to the end of this vision, we are reminded of what is to come. Your kingdom being established. Your promise being fulfilled. The full consummation of all things. And the reward for those who don't deserve those rewards. The reward to your people who remain faithful to Christ, your Son, our Savior, until the very end. So give us strength and help us to anchor the, uh, our souls and our hearts in the truth of the gospel and help us to long for that day, even as John longed for that day when he said, Come, Lord Jesus. So I pray that you would work in our hearts this hope and receive now the praise of your people as we respond in song. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.